welcome to the first episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast. So I'm Stefan Partilo, and this podcast will be co-hosted by myself and by Michael Cox. Um, this podcast is going to be hosted under a new platform that we will be launching in the coming months. It's going to be called the Environmental Social Science Network. So much of the content will be focused on a broad spectrum of environmental social science research, but the topics in the podcast are not going to be limited to this necessarily. Um, each episode will be a discussion or an interview with a different guest, primarily scientists and practitioners who have a broad focus on environmental and sustainability issues from social science perspectives. And episodes will include discussions on research methods, topics, and theories, but also career stories and experiences. The format for the podcast will, at least we will try to aim for it to be conversational and free-flowing with the aim to have minimal editing. We would like the podcast to be more or less long-form, uh, giving enough time to get deeper into the topics um, and allow a platform to have kind of more in-depth conversations. However, the episodes might vary in length depending on the different guests we have. Uh, we do have some great guests scheduled so far, and we're looking forward to getting those out to all of you as soon as possible. We would be really glad for feedback, of course, on either this episode or the coming episodes, and particularly on the types of conversations you would like to hear and you would like us uh, and the guests you would like to have uh, on the podcast. So there are many existing academic communities out there with their own networks and platforms, and part of the aim of this podcast is, and the coming network, the Environmental Social Science Network, is to provide a tool that can find some of the links between them um, and to connect those communities. Um, and this, this includes, but uh, is not necessarily limited to fields like political ecology, human geography, political economy, social and environmental anthropology, sustainability science, behavioral economics, social psychology, marine social science, conservation social science, common scholarship, political science, ecological and environmental economics, rural sociology, and, and other subfields of sociology. Um, and of course, there are many others. So the podcast will be freely available for streaming on our website, and we aim to make it available on most of the usual podcast platforms, um, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, etc. But this may take some time as we try to figure out how those various platforms work. So if you're interested in the conversations we're having on the podcast, please feel free to subscribe to the podcast or to share it with friends, with colleagues, or on social media. You can follow or contact us on Twitter at find-sust-pod. That's at F-I-N-D-S-U-S-T-P-O-D. So in this first episode, Michael and I have a conversation reflecting on his career experiences, and then we discuss our vision for building the podcast and network as a knowledge exchange and a communication tool. And you'll hear some of the background behind our thinking and how the ideas for this podcast and for the network evolved. So I hope you enjoy it. The first thing I thought was to just briefly introduce ourselves um, and our kind of our paths to academia, at least just a little bit of background so people can understand where we're coming from. And then we'll get into our reasons for starting the podcast and our reasons for starting um, the Environmental Social Science Network as the platform which is on. So, yeah, maybe we'll just start with me asking you a question. You know, where did you start your academic career? Sure. Yeah. So I went I have a Ph.D. in Technically, it's in public affairs from the um, School of Public and Environmental Affairs, or SPIA, at uh, Indiana University in Bloomington, um, a place that I still miss, actually. It's got, like, the best pizza I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I went there. I got, got there in the fall of 2004, graduated in 2010, but then I stayed on for a couple years as a postdoc, so I was there for a good long time. 
And now um, I went from, from there to Dartmouth College, where I am now uh, as a professor in environmental studies here. And I'm from the Northeast, so that felt like coming home in a way. Um, yeah, and, and what to say about kind of the, the path. I mean, one thing... Um, one thing is interesting when you when you think about you know how did you get here is it's as much it's in a way we, we think about it as as if I'm like recalling everything but I think you know there's as much like reconstruction and narrative creation as there is actual recall when we're like thinking about the narratives of of how we got to to where we are um, and of course that's what happens I think when we talk to each other and we pre it's a very much presentational it's like I am not quite performing but it's um, I'm constructing a narrative for you and for anyone else who might be listening about how I got here. Um, which of course is, I mean, that aspect of storytelling is something I think we, a lot of us think about when we interview, um, folks in our work. In any case, um, I, yeah, I went to Indiana. Um, and when I think about, you know, why I started down the academic path, um, it's actually a fairly, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the, the, what is it, the apple or whatever kind of fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Um, I mean, my father is, has been a professor for my whole life. He's a biostatistician. He was at the University of Rochester when I was growing up. So you could call me kind of an academic brat if that's a thing. Um, I really liked grad school. When I think back about the reasons why I initially went to get a PhD, it's it's because that's kind of what you did in my family. I mean, I have two older brothers, and they both have PhDs. Um, was that my something that you one, imagined so like, as a child? That you would, What's up? Does that something that you imagined when you were younger, that you would always go into academia or do a PhD, and that was something that was no. like a likely path for you? I didn't think about it even for a second. I mean, honestly, when... You talk to some people and they have this, they say like, oh, I knew I wanted to do this or I was made to do this. Like I've never felt that way. And even thinking that way has never fully made sense to me, not to criticize people who think that way. It's just I've not been able to like inter interpret my experiences um, through that perspective. Um, even when I was getting a PhD, I didn't feel like um, I was doing it because I needed to be like a professor at a college or a university. Um, I'm very happy being one. Um, but it, I always felt, um, like this was a, a step that I was really in, enjoying taking I mean, again, like I loved being in grad school, you know, what a privilege, you're a professional learner. Um, and I, I realized that I really liked teaching while I was a, a PhD student, and I just loved the academic environment. But um, yeah, for me, it's 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 never felt like kind of academia or bust, um, which is honestly for me felt important. You know, I think it's as we continue to educate, um, you know, current PhD students. Um, for me, it's always been important to communicate some of that kind of flexibility of identity as well. Um, I mean, you can go in lots of places with this, but I think there, there is a, a kind of resilience to having, um, flexibility in your identity, right? So if, oh, if, if I can't, if this doesn't, if this doesn't work out and I can't have this identity, this public identity as a professor or whatever it is, well, I've got these other things that can still make me happy. These yeah. other paths. 
and I almost don't like using the word other here as if like it's some alternative, as if academia is the primary thing that we all should be doing. And, oh, there are these other things. It's like, well, no, even that language is already a little bit uh, normative in ways that can be unproductive. Um, yeah. Do you feel that that the further you go into academia, the more path dependent you are and staying in that position? Or do you feel that there's somehow at any point you can move into a different space, a career space? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to geek out hard about path dependence because it's definitely something I like just thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that's almost trivially true. I mean, it's not that it's not an interesting question, but just like, yes, path dependence is unavoidable. And certainly it's the case that the farther you go down, I mean, it's it's true, but I don't think it's at all specific to academia. I think we all have tendencies to um, both overgeneralize, but also act whatever the opposite of overgeneralizing is over specify or whatever. Like we talk about the, the challenges or the experiences in academia and a lot of those are specific to academia, but a lot of those aren't right. Right. Like sometimes I might come, I might talk about the challenges of my job, but a lot of that is simply because it's a job not specific right. to academic work necessarily. Yeah, I mean, you, okay, I have to show up to my office and deal with people sometimes. And like, well, that's that's life. That's like, people are people in a lot of ways. And so, um, but it's certainly the case that, you know, because your social networks, you know, build over time. And m most of my social network is other academics. Like, I've, it's been important to me to have a part of my social network be folks working for NGOs, and part of that's related to my own research. I work with folks in my research that work for NGOs, et cetera. Um, but your skill set as well kind of gets tracked. You know, I think for me, an important way to think about path dependence is through the different types of capital endowments that we all have, right? So I have intellectual capital, I have social capital, and those are complementary, and those basically adapt over time to the demands of my current position. Mm -hmm. Um, and so be, it's going to be very natural for that to lead me to be, um, more valuable in my current position and less valuable in alternative positions because my skill set and the, the people I know, um, help me do what I'm trying to do now. Right. Um, so yes, and I think that is a challenge, but I don't think it's a challenge specific to academia. It's. How do we do, you know, it's really, it relates to some big topics in our field about adaptability, resilience versus like optimization, et cetera. I'm trying to optimize my current job and how well I do at it, but there is a cost there in terms of potential flexibility and my ability to kind of move into some other position, et cetera. I think th those are challenges that we all face um, in life and our positions. Um, and again, that's something I think interesting about the fields that we study, environmental governance, environmental social science, et cetera, is that I think as humans, we live out a lot of the concepts that we study intellectually, mm -hmm. you know, resilience, adaptability, trade-offs, optimization, like those are all concepts that at least informally we're, we're having to kind of wrestle with in our own lives. Um, yeah. What would you say? You know, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, the different types of capital that you have, which define your skill set. What would you say your skill set is as an academic um, and the terms of how you think about your work and, and how it's useful? Ooh, yeah, that's a big question. Um, 
I mean, yeah, for a long time, I've, I've valued, you know, what we call mixed method approaches to environmental social science. And I think my skill set fairly strongly reflects that. I mean, and, and by mixed method, it's, um, I mean, basically what we're talking about is both qualitative and quantitative work, right? I mean, that's largely what that term is used for. So, you know, I'm, I do basic statistical analysis in my work. There's nothing fancy about it, um, but it's, and in, and in part that's dictated by just data constraints, right? So in my work, there's a, there's a lot of primary data collection. We're going into the field and we're conducting interviews with natural resource users. So that's, you know, questionnaire development, the soft skills of, of, in-person interviews is another kind of skill that that I have and the people that I work with have. Um, but it's really costly to collect data that way. Um, and so we end up with data sets that aren't really that huge, right? I mean, this has been, this is one of the main challenges in the field is that we don't have tons and tons of data because each observation in a, in a, in a spreadsheet, it represents like a two-hour conversation in a remote village sometimes, right? So, you're, right. and this that relates to a conversation that a lot of us have across the quantitative-qualitative divide is like, when is an observation just an observation versus a whole case study with like a lot of data kind of behind it? Um, yeah, I know that's so, some work that you guys have been doing with the SESMAD database, and that's also something we can talk about later with the potential network we're trying to develop and how do we kind of reconcile and integrate data better for comparability? Yeah, I mean, I think that is, you know, if we, if I depict uh, the top three challenges we face, I mean, that's one of them. And really it gets, it gets to what, what one of my motivations for this podcast is and for the network that we're trying to develop is, I mean, I think the main challenge is, you know, working together, you know, the book that, I'm sure we're going to refer to, or I'm going to refer to several times, probably per episode, um, by Amy Petit, Marco Jansen, and Lynn Ostrom. I think it was published in 2010. It's about how do we actually work together to produce knowledge. I think that needs to be a strong part of the discourse across multiple fields, you know, within environmental social science. How do we actually, and there's lots of versions of that question. What does it mean to work together? How do we actually do it? You know, the way you mentioned it is how do we leverage what is essentially local knowledge that different researchers have about their field sites to produce comparable results that helps us generate, gen, you know, what we frequently call mid-range theories. I mean, I think that's, you know, that doesn't have to be the only goal that our community has. I think it's an important one. Um, Could you briefly explain the the difference, like the diff between mid-range theories and other theories, or how do you think about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think mid-range theories is kind of, you know, it's another application of what you could call like the Goldilocks principle, right? Like not too much, not too little, just enough. In part, I think it's a response to this tendency we see in our field towards overgeneralization. I mean, I don't think it's in our field. I think there's a natural human tendency to overgeneralize. In our field, that's been uh, manifested through the popularity of lots of different policy panaceas, right? So a, str a strong part of the current discourse now is that there's no, there are no panaceas to our environmental problems. We can't just um, pick a one size fits all solution and implement it everywhere. That's like, it's really part of the dogma of, of a lot of environmental social science now. I mean, so Lynn Ostrom, who's, 
was my PhD advisor at Indiana, like she, that was one of her main messages, right? Um, there are no simple solutions. Um, there are no quick technical fixes. It's a huge part of, um, it's an organizing principle of our field. I think it's a starting point for, for a lot of us is, well, given that there is no one size fits all, where do we go from there? Because if you, if you, you could go from there to say, well, okay, is everything just unique and specific and we can't, we shouldn't generalize at all, right? Given that overgeneralization can be pernicious, right? Because the challenge of, of panaceas is that they lead to a lack of fit between policy and context, socially and ecologically. Um, there can be a lot of um, pernicious power relationships that are involved in the implementation of such policies, et cetera. It's tempting to say, well, we should um, go in the other direction and just try to document how unique every case is. Right. Is kind of, you know, trying basically eschewing generalizability entirely. And I mean, I think that's, you know, that's, if we go in that direction, we're basically talking about playing a different game we're talking about a different communal exercise. Um, it's no longer about um, a certain type of social learning where we're trying to learn about the differences and similarities across cases. Um, and that's not a direction, I don't want to go that far in that direction because a lot of what I think we want to do is just that. I think we want to, we do want to do some generalizations, um, but we want to be thoughtful about them. Yeah, you know, and really the idea of mid-range theories embodies this this idea that it, there's some, you know, semi-happy medium between too much and too little generalization, and then a mid-range theory is a theory that's applicable to a certain well-identified subset of cases, whether it's all fisheries, whether it's all small-scale fisheries, whatever it is, um, and can say something valid about that set. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's really where a lot, like, to me, that's where we want to be heading as a field. Um, I, I didn't come up with this, obviously. I mean, I'm reminded of a lot of good work by Oren Young, um, who's talked a fair amount about these kinds of ideas. And, and Lynn definitely picked them up and talked about them as well. Um, I'm interested in your perspective. You mentioned a couple times we in our field and this field. You know, what field specifically are you talking about is... Uh, I think for for, yeah. for us, those of us, you and I are probably in the same field. It's usually referring to common scholarship. Um, but do you have a different idea on that? And and this is something we should talk about in relation to what is environmental social science in general. Um, how, yeah, does that I field mean, have its a... own identity? And what is the link between that and some of the work that's been done in common scholarship and other social science fields related to the environment? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a real challenge, actually. Um, you know, labels are double-edged swords. You know, people labeling each other is, uh, it's tricky, it's, it's, it's a way in which people other each other, it's a source of, it's, it relates to a lot of intergroup conflict that we see in the world, um, and that we see in our own work when we're studying different groups of folks, right? Um, you know, at the same time, labels are, you know, to get back to the issue of identity, they're an important way in which we construct identity for ourselves too, right? Um, going back to my time in Indiana, you know, 
I was a PhD student at, in the School of Public Environmental Affairs, but really my identity, once I became a student of Linostrum's, was dominated by, by, by that. So I was an Ostrom scholar. More than it, that was a stronger part of my reputation and my social identity than what my PhD was in, et cetera. But you know, and and a lot of uh, Ostrom Ostrom students do study the commons. Um, not all not all of us do, and not all of us do in the in um, the ways that she did as a, a, um, represented by the book, you know, Governing the Commons from 1990. And I think it was a challenge that several of us have had as her students that, you know, for her, it was, you know, she was a political scientist who won the Nobel Prize in economics, but she um, was not a traditional political scientist. And, she, you know, many people would have said she was not an economist. Um, and I think she was at a point in her career where that, you know, she was enough of um, a thing in herself that, you know, she produced her own identity and she was Eleanor Ostrom, right? And I think once someone becomes a, a big enough name, you know, the dynamics of prestige and celebrity can kind of take over and you don't need to worry as much about which box you're fitting in because you're creating your, your own box. Right. Well, okay, as a, you know, is that available, is that option available to like a 27-year-old PhD student? Generally not. Um, and we shouldn't expect it to be, but for a lot of us, it was like, okay, how do I market myself? It certainly helps a lot that I'm a, I'm a student of Linostrum's, but like, what am I? Yeah, that's you know, certainly an identity. That's something that I also think about because just related to what you said about that, she didn't have to worry about fitting into a box and forge a new path. A lot of people followed behind her and now she's no longer with us. And a lot of us are kind of left in a space where we have to find an identity within that path, which was forged, which could be difficult. I think it also provides opportunity uh, for interdisciplinarity. Yeah, and I don't want to, you know, I think Lynn earned the spot that she got into, right? And so I was seeing her after, you know, decades and decades of of working, which she had to overcome lots of challenges of, of identity and, and, and figure all that out. Um, so that's, I mean, that's something certainly important to recognize. It's not like she was just granted this position, right? She definitely earned it. Um, and what I was, you know, so rather than saying, well, you know, we have this challenge moving forward. I mean, I think she helped us, um, kind of come up with our own identity, but at the same time, um, you know, when I talk to anthropologists, it's very clear that like, they a, a lot of the anthropologists I talk to identify as anthropologists, and that's an important part of their social identity. When I talk to a political scientist or an economist, it's a very important part for a lot of them of like their social identity. Like you know, I'm a card carrying fill in the blank archaeologist, what have you. You know, we we don't have that. A lot of us, like you know, environmental social scientist, I think is decent. Um, I don't think it fully solves the label problem. Common scholar is good too, but again, it feels like it's not, you know, do you need to be some kind of ist? Um, I mean, I think maybe. This is not a new conversation, but I think it's something, it's an ongoing challenge for a lot of us. Well, I think it makes a lot of people feel more comfortable in an academic career because that's the way that the academic system is organized as a structure. So it's much yes. easier to identify, oh, I'm in this department, I focus on those theories, um, and I can find jobs going forward within that realm. 
Yeah. Whereas a lot of us, um, which I would include myself, you know, it's pretty unclear uh, as to what department I could get a job in or what position would be interesting for me. And when I think about um, either academic or non-academic options going forward, how to describe the work that I do, which fits into a box with pe which either people from the outside or even other academics um, feel comfortable trying to understand what that work is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, we should take some inspiration from, from Lynn and believe in the possibility of basically creating new boxes, right? I mean, Lynn really started, along with a bunch of other folks, the field of the commons. Um, and so hopefully over time, you know, I mean, I think this is, it's, and again, I don't want to make, make this whole conversation about identity, but it, it um, you know, I think in economics, sometimes people talk about price takers and, and is it price setters? And that refers to kind of your market power, right? So if you don't have a lot of power in a market, you're more of a price taker. And I've started to think about how that can be, you know, in, in social systems that don't, you know, more general than than market-based transactions in social systems, I think that we can talk about have norm takers and norm setters. And I think early in our careers, um, we're all essentially norm takers. We're trying to internalize a whole bunch of existing norms. A lot of professionalization is about norm taking. It's about learning what the norms are um, and internalizing them. And then, of course, the complicated part of social systems is that they are self-reinforcing to get back to the path dependence. And you know, by internalizing norms, we then perpetuate them. Uh, for better or worse. Yeah, what is that? That's an interesting idea. What What is the then change which needs to occur to get you to be from a norm taker to a norm setter? Is that something which is just more or less internal work, uh, confidence, building your own identity as an academic where you feel you can cross into new territory and start setting? Or is that something which is dictated from the outside? I think it's got to be both. I mean, I think it's, I mean, a lot of it is strongly internal. Um, but a lot of it, you know, when I think about my own experience as now feeling empowered to be more of a norm setter, I think it would be unreasonable of me to say that I've gotten to that place without, um, you know, frankly, some, some luck in getting this position, um, you know, I think to be successful, you need to be lucky and you need to be good. And the empowerment that comes along with formal positions, um, the importance of being in supportive environments and having key people, you know, I mean, this is um, having key people support you. You know, there's, there's a lot of discourse now about the importance of mentorship, having someone who's willing to kind of take you under their wing and kind of pull you up into the next level, the next space. So, I mean, Lynn was certainly um, an important mentor for a lot of us, but really, you, you know, I don't think you grow out of the need for mentorship as quickly as we assume you do. I mean, oh, you have this position and you've quote unquote made it, but like you still need people to mentor you, I would say almost throughout your career. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I like to think about the similarities between, you know, intellectual work and athletic work, you know, or, or a musician or whoever it is, like they need, as long as you're playing, as long as you're being an athlete, whatever it is, you need coaching. Um, and so I think in our careers, 
we never grow out of the need to be coached and to be mentored. And I think it's those experiences that enable you, you know, you need a space where you're able to kind of prove your competency to yourself and people around you. And that's how you build confidence over time. You know, it's, I think it is something that's fairly incremental. You kind of watch yourself fail a little bit, but then you watch yourself learn from that and then you watch yourself succeed. And you need to be able to watch yourself doing those things over time to kind of start believing in yourself over time. At least that's how I've experienced it. Um, and when I listen to athletes talk about, you know, I, I like tennis and I, I listen to um, interviews with really good tennis players sometimes. And they talk about how, you know, confidence can be fragile and it is something that needs to be built up over time. Um, particularly if you're coming by it honestly, you know, if you're not just trying to, I mean, I think confidence is different than, you know, it's, it's different than, you know, arrogance. It's different than simple posturing in a social environment. If done well, you know, I mean, this gets, again, this, there's so many like dots to connect here. We can get lost. Right. But, um, you know, a, a norm, a norm setter is another way to talk about uh, a leader. Right. And we, and again, this is something I think is interesting is we study leadership in, in a lot of the work that we do. And I think it's helpful to think, to apply some of those same intellectual ideas to our own communities. You know, I think good leaders are responsible norm setters. Um, when I look at a community that seems to be going well or not, I mean, I think a lot of that does, re that relates to who are the norm setters and what kind of norms are they setting? Um, but I think it takes time. I think to become a good leader takes time. And I think it is a mix of, it has to be, there is something deeply personal about it. You know, there is an evolution of your own sense of self, of your own understanding of what your role in the system is. Um, but that, that never happens without feedback from your external environment, without important people in your life believing you over time, et cetera. Yeah, that's really interesting. Unfortunately, I can't remember who said this, but I heard another interesting analogy to that you should have a board of directors for your life in the same mm. way that you would structure a company, right? So you should, at each level of the game, as you move up, um, just because you finished your PhD and your formal advisors are, are no longer playing that formal role, finding other people who can give you advice and you can rely on within either within your career or externally in your normal life uh, is this concept of having a board of directors of people which you can you can trust that they will give you honest feedback uh i think that was a really interesting concept and unfortunately i can't think who, who where i heard that but it seems to get along that idea of, of the need for mentorship and, and one of the other points that you mentioned was the role of individuals within academia i think that's an interesting concept because i think from the outside academia is kind of perceived as a whole a collective whole which is kind of de-individualized it pumps out knowledge which is useful mm -hmm. um but i the role of individuals within academia, at least for those of us who have been in there for a while, um, I think it's it's very important. Um, I think that's underemphasized from the outside. Um, mm. That certain people really push ideas, and this idea of norm setting, I think, is useful for understanding that or seeing that more explicitly within certain fields. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, this whole idea that there's I mean, and again, this is something that happens with academia. It's it's certainly not ex exclusive um, or sp unique to it. Um, 
you know, there is this kind of the trope of the academic or it's used as an adjective sometimes as being both intellectually deep but somehow frivolous at the same time. I mean, that's certainly like there's a discourse about that. Um, and I think it's it, it, honestly it relates to this kind of there's a bit of an othering aspect to that or there's even a term I heard the other day, the kind of the outgroup homogeneity effect where, you know, as humans, we are all in a variety of groups and we're all not in a variety of other groups. I mean, that's kind of to be human it is to be in a group. Um, and, you know, this, the idea of the outgroup homogeneity effect is one of those concepts that as soon as you hear it, you think, oh, yes, like this, this is this is what's happening when I hear this um, characterization of, say, academia, right? This idea that like academics are all homogenous. And it's, you know, pick your stereotype. Um, uh, people who tend to be more introverted and want to think about big ideas and don't really want to engage, blah, 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 blah. Um, and of course, once you're in an environment, once you're actually in an organization, um, you become, because you're living it, you live your, you, you understand your own diversity and variation of experience as a human and you, you, Insofar as you get to know other people around you fairly well, you understand that, of course, they as humans also experience this diver like this diversity of um, of challenges and opportunities, et cetera. Um, I mean, I do think you know there are challenges within academia. I mean, I remember um, like my first year as a PhD student, someone came and gave a talk to us and was trying to kind of pep us up about, you know, how we were going to have, like what our experiences were going to be like over the next like five years. And they said that we were about to embark on a kind of monastic experience. And part of me thought, okay, you know, that's neat. Like I, I really love learning, but a part of me thought, well, it's, it's not what I want to do. Like that sounds, it makes it sound like I'm not going to be engaging with an awful lot of people a lot of the time. And so, you know, at the same time, it's 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 tricky to to over homogenize whole groups of folks for lots of reasons. But there there are some norms towards um, social exclusion. Uh, I don't know how to say it exactly, but I I do think sometimes that a challenge that we have in a lot of series of academia is like valuing. Um, individual work that's less socially engaged in a variety of ways than I think some of us would like it to be. I mean, for example, what, you know, I think it relates to, you know, why I'm, I really am excited about this podcast, why I'm excited about this environmental social science network that we're talking about, because I think it's moving in the other direction. I think, again, it gets back to working together. I think that's what the challenge is. I think that's where we need to head. Um, and in terms of talking about norm setting, I think we want to set more norms that value working together, working collaboratively. Um, yeah, definitely. It makes me think about what is because you know, this tendency to form groups and that's just a natural part of any social system uh, to be part of multiple groups and just the recognition that you are part of multiple groups and that happens naturally makes you reflect on how which groups become formalized within within academic structures. Mm. And how that creates either dependencies, benefits, shortcomings about the the most optimal way to optimize academia for the individuals who are in it, but also as a way to produce knowledge as a whole. 
And I think partly one of the reasons why I'm also interested in the network here is that, you know, we can rethink that. I think the, you and I are both more or less, what I would say, self-identify as environmental social scientists, but that's only out of a, a way or because we, you know, we there's some sort of resistance to conforming within the existing group's identity. There's not really an identity within the group, which you feel mm -hmm. that you fit entirely within. Um, and there's some either a need to merge between two different groups um, or to recombine different groups or just to rethink, yeah. even if we don't know what the answer of the, the group formation problem is, it's there's simply just a need to reflect on that uh, as a community. Yeah, I mean, I think it relates to this idea of labeling, right? I think when we talk about the importance of labeling, it's really about the importance of group membership, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think human... As humans, we, I mean, it's really important, and there's been some really great research that's talked about this, it's, it's really important for us to belong to groups. Um, in our evolutionary history, it was important, it's important now. Um, and again, there's, there's the, the social, I mean, it's, it's important for our individual well-being. Um, the social implications of it are complicated. And, I, and again, I think that's, you know, one of the challenges of social life um, is that the more you cohere internally as a group, the more you you can tend to conflict with other groups. Right. right. And so there's this strong tension between cooperation and conflict that we see. And I don't think we get around those dynamics entirely. You know, one of my favorite pieces that I read as a grad student um, well, it was in this book, Drama of the Commons. It was published in 2002 by the National Re National Resource Research Council. And there's a chapter in there by Pete Richardson and Robert Boyd. It's basically like an evolutionary theory of commons management, which I just love. And they talk basically about how governance is can be thought of as a, basically a bunch of workarounds on our evolved psychology. So like, human beings bring certain things to the table one being our groupiness that we naturally um, want to be in a variety of groups. And so their, their, their take on it was, well, we bring certain things to the table and we should have those things in mind when we construct institutions and norms, et cetera, to move us forward towards better social environmental outcomes. I think it behooves us as scholars to think about what we all bring to the table in similar ways when we, when we move forward in our own communities. Right. You know, it is important for us to, to be members of groups. We want to think about what what costs that can have, right? Because if if nothing else, it doesn't need to involve a lot of conflict, but simply, you know, group membership is both, it's necessarily exclusionary. So what do you do about that? I mm -hmm. mean, that's already, that's a problem, right. right? So who's in, who's out, who gets to be in, who who doesn't get to be in? Like that's what if if you're gonna be, have members of groups, like that's suddenly an issue, right? And I think it's an important part of our discourse about, um, I mean, an awful lot of things. I mean, about environmental governance, about environmental justice, about a lot of different topics that we study. And I don't, you know, again, going back to the idea of panaceas, I don't think there's an easy solution to that problem. To the both the importance of human being for human beings to belong to groups and um, the strong tendency for that dynamic then to lead for some people to be excluded from groups. I mean, that's, um, 
one of the great like social challenges I think moving forward. I think it's a challenge uh, in in our own work, environmental social science. We study groups uh, of folks, and I think it's a challenge for us moving forward in our own scholarly communities. Um, and I think you know it relates to some good work that Lynn and other folks did. Is like how do groups maintain themselves over time? Well. One of Lynn's design principles was there need to be proportionality of costs and benefits, right? The people that are doing good work in a group should benefit from being in that group. So again, I think there's there's a large intellectual infrastructure for us to, to depend on as we're building up new groups for us to benefit from. Yeah, I think that's a good transition into, we, we can talk maybe a little bit now about um, our idea for this uh, environmental social science network and also the idea for the podcast. Yeah. Um, it's something that, yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about how it involved because this is something that started on, on Twitter even. I think I put yeah. out a tweet sometime late last year just asking if there was any any interest in doing a podcast, interest in, in starting an environmental social science network uh, in a very in much informal way and that's something where you uh, responded Um we actually didn't know each other too well before then or um and we yeah. like started discussing this idea for the podcast and for this network over the last few months together um you know what is your what is your kind of thoughts behind why that would be useful yeah i mean i again i think i mean it was i remember seeing that tweet of yours and it was one of these funny moments where the world seems to be listening to your thoughts and responding because I had been thinking that we needed something like this for a while. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of us um, as scientists, we also view ourselves as storytellers. You know, um, I think I suppose you could the roles of storytelling and um, scientists are not mutually exclusive for a lot of us, and I think. There's a strong sense that good science is good storytelling. And I mean, ultimately, I'm not, I mean, the most gratifying parts of the science I do are the stories that I get to tell um, with the science that I'm doing. And so I had been thinking about, you know, different ways to both learn other people's stories, tell my own stories, et cetera. Um, because you know, at, at the same time, like the traditional research papers that we write, we are telling stories through them, but um, there are important constraints on on our ability to tell them. In like, you're you know, because you're writing for a scientific audience, and there are you can make it more story. You can make stronger narratives in your papers or, or less strong, but ultimately, you are constrained by the format. And so I was really excited to have a different format to learn about other people's stories. Um, and it relates to something else that you and I have talked about is, you know, there's a strong pressure to publish a lot um, in arguably all academic fields. So we're all writing a lot. Um, but it's, we're writing a lot more, I think, than we're reading. Um, which is, I think, a challenge in academia as well. I mean, you, when you stop reading, in an important way, you stop learning. Um, and so I think a lot of us, you know, kind of miss the days, again, as PhD students, when, when we were professional learners. Right. You know, and I think a lot of us get away from that um, for very understandable reasons. There's a, you know, 
you now have a job that's very challenging and there's lots of things that you're supposed to produce, et cetera. But I think it's important to create spaces where that learning can still happen and where the stories storytelling can happen. And that's very much how I view um, the the opportunity, the potential of a of a podcast, right? So we're not gonna necessarily pick up and read like the top ten articles that each interviewee has written but we'll be able to learn about their experiences and their stories and their work by talking to them. And other people will then be able to learn about those folks um, in the same way, right? In the same way that we're learning about each other um, as we start this project up. So I think it's um, a response to this challenge that we have where we don't have a lot of time to learn about each other. and I mean, similarly, I've, I've mentioned this to you. I think one of the challenges we have in academia is there's, there's, there is a kind of rich get richer um, dynamic, right? Where, you know, the people that get cited a lot are the ones that get cited a lot. And are the people who get read a lot are the ones that get read a lot. And this, again, is not specific to academia at all, right? But it's, oh, who should I? There's 50 articles that talk about this. Um, it'd be reasonable to cite any of those 50 in this section of my paper. But what, what do we tend to do? We tend to cite the ones that have been cited a lot. Well, there's a very obvious self-reinforcing dynamic there. Definitely. So I think, again, as an alternative space, there's an opportunity um, for a podcast to not you know, only go to the quote-unquote big names in a field, but also get a more diverse um, – Set a, learn about a more diverse set of experiences and stories about how a whole different groups of folks have kind of come to where they are. Um, even if, you know, a lot of those folks are less visible in some of the more traditional ways, right? They're almost, you know, we're all kind of legible to each other now through our digital identities, um, which is fine. But I think it makes, you know, some people are less traditionally legible than others because of that dynamic. And so if we can engage with a larger diversity of folks and learn about a larger diversity of stories, I think that'll just, that'll really make for a healthier discourse within our scientific communities. Um, and I'm really excited about that potential as well. Um, you know, it's, it, it, you know, we can interview folks that have been in academia for 30 years, but then we can also talk to a new PhD student who's, you know, hasn't been cited at all or, just all the different ways in which people can have diverse experiences, age and career stage being, of course, only one of them. I think there's a real potential to hear lots of different stories and really learn from each other, right? Like human beings are social learners, right? We yeah. are, our brains are better when they're surrounded and can learn from other brains. And so um, we can, if we can create this as a resource for folks in our community to really learn from each other, I think that's really exciting. You know, yeah, I'm, definitely. I'm, I've, you know, I've been reading all day. I don't want to read another PDF, but oh, I can listen to this podcast for like half an hour while I'm at the gym or wherever I'm going, and I can learn about this person, and then maybe I even want to contact them. I mean, I think that's that's what I think we're trying to create, and that's like where where I think the value is for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you know, when I think back on what are the traditional mediums for academic exchange, um, something we also talked about is that you're you 
most of us are more or less limited to the interpersonal react or relationships which and interactions which we have at our own institutes or maybe if we're lucky we we stay in contact with those at previous institutes where we studied or did previous mm -hmm. work um and then maybe you know once twice a couple of times a year we would get together we would go to a conference we have a very brief uh, exchange of ideas which is not very uh, it's not long form i think that that's a use off a word i often use um, mm -hmm. in the podcast realm where you can really get deeper into ideas or you know you, st you start an idea and then you don't see the next person until six months later at the next conference or event etc right. um, and then most of the academic exchange is through things that we have to read and reading is is something which takes a long time um, especially yep. these days with with the the incredible amount of stuff that's being published every day um, and I think that's one, one of the reasons why podcasts are becoming popular in general is because, you you know, we want to have more personal connections which relate to the individual. Um, and you don't really get that through a paper. There is a name on a paper. Um, mm -hmm. And but you don't really see the person behind the science. It's not a very personal endeavor. And and papers don't often, in, in my experience, when I talk with, with, with people who have published about their published work afterwards, you often get the, a totally different impression about what that paper was about or what they meant mm -hmm. about that when you ask them about it later um, than the form than the interpretation which you formed when you read it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really valuable to understand the thought process behind the work which is being published as well. And yeah just just relieving also the burden of reading so much i mean like you said you can <laughs> yeah you can I, I listen to podcasts when i when i ride my bike home or when i'm at the gym or when i'm doing something else um and it's something where i can still stay engaged and get those interpersonal relationships um and not look at a look at a screen all day yeah i mean you definitely i mean how many times have you know i remember you, you you'll go up to someone having read their paper and it's almost a surprise that there's a person who wrote the paper. Right. It's like, oh, it's you, right? Like you, you wrote this paper. And now we can talk. Like for some reason, your brain like didn't didn't realize that, right? And like I've had people come up to me like, oh, now we're like I know you, and there is like this strange experience of like actually meeting someone who who wrote something. Like there is some weird gap. Um, between you and the author when you're reading their stuff without actually having without meeting them or hearing their voice etc and it's almost like your brain doesn't realize that, that that a person wrote that right that there's a person in the world that you could meet who wrote that right it's like this name and then that's about it right yeah and one of the other things I thought would be useful for this podcast is, is to get those interpersonal stories because what, what we see when form of communication in science is, is really through the papers but all you see is the end product you don't right. see how the product is made uh, there's basically yeah. no communication about how the product is made which is shared generally across academics and different especially in different fields i mean within the fields maybe um, you, you tend to see how different projects are, are are formed how the project the proposal development stage goes the, the searching for funders the whole academic process but you we tend not to understand how those processes work for other people Mm -hmm. um, unless you have close mentors at different levels of academia or, or you have really close contact at multiple institutes. And that's something I think you can really bring out with the podcast is, is to see what are those common struggles which all of us have, but we're somehow often siloed into thinking that those are problems which we only face. And there can mm -hmm. be a lot to be learned, uh, I think, about how to deal with those processes um, through sharing 
and having communication uh, channels and boundary. Uh, we have, we, you and I have talked about this idea of the podcast as, as some sort of a boundary object, yeah. something that can link people together through a different medium. Um, and you kind of see that through Twitter. I think that's why Twitter is so popular within academia, but it's very much, lim- it's almost the opposite. It doesn't provide that long form, those depth of conversations. It still connects people. And I, that's where you can see why it's useful because people want to connect. They want to exchange ideas. They want to share. They want to get out of their bubble and their groups. Um, but yeah. it's a very, it's a very brief uh, medium for exchange. It doesn't allow the depth that you could get, for, for example, in a podcast. So that's why I'd be excited to, to, to share the stories on, on this platform. Yeah, I mean, just one, we could go, of course, we could talk about any of these things for like 10 hours. I mean, but I, I think, it, again, one of the one of the goals, you know, for a, for a sustainability-oriented podcast is to connect different groups. Um, you know, there's, there's the idea of environmental social science um, reflects a fairly large social umbrella of folks that are, have broadly similar research questions, but um, also I'm sure have lots of potentially very interesting disagreements about how to answer those questions. You know, one of the challenges, you know, and we won't get into this because there's been a lot said about it of, of social media. I mean, of course, as you said, it's, it's the opposite of long form, even with like these long Twitter threads that you sometimes see. Um, but it's, you know, what I've read seems to indicate that people very much, um, stay within their group on social media, right? So you'll have your friends on Facebook or you have the people you follow on Twitter and um, you have, a, you know, kind of an ossification of social groups that can sometimes, it seems to, to me to be happening there. And so I think the challenge is um, how do you reach across groups, right? In our case, how do you reach across different intellectual communities and right. learn from each other? And I think that's always in real, in normal social life and in this particular version of it, that's always more challenging. Um, but I think, um, you know, in environmental governance, it's important. And for, for learning, it's important, right? If you can open yourself, if you can make yourself kind of psychologically available to lessons that a different community has learned, um, how great for you, right? I mean, you're going to, you're going to know so much more if you can make yourself open to those different experiences and lessons that other folks have learned. And of course, from a purely efficiency perspective, maybe we can stop reinventing the, the reinventing the what, what, what is the phrase that always gets reinvented? Reinventing the wheel. Reinventing the wheel. I was going to say hammer. I'm sure that's been reinvented too. Right. But we can stop reinventing the wheel if we can actually spur more cross group social learning. No, definitely. I mean, that's one of the things which I thought, you know, that is the potential for something like the environmental social science network. And I've spent some time thinking, you know, what is the broadest platform or identity or group for which it can still be as as inclusive as possible for social scientists who still work in generally about social uh, people in the environment, sustainability issues in the social sciences. And I'm just looking at the list here that you and I were, were thinking about the, the other day and, you know, groups like political ecology, human geography, political economy, social, uh, social environmental psychology, marine social science, conservation social science, common scholars, political science, environmental and ecological economics, rural sociology. I mean, there's so many crossovers. Uh, of, of course, there's also a lot of differences, but there's so many potential crossovers in terms of context theory or methods um, where we can still learn. And a lot of those groups have formed their own uh, platforms and networks or podcasts or Twitter groups. Um, 
But I think there's a huge potential to learn across those. And the degree to which that's going to happen will, of course, be somehow self-organized. Um, or mm. I would like it to be self-organized. And I think that's something you and I have also talked about was that the idea, you know, we we are starting this podcast and we are going to put up the initial infrastructure for hopefully this environmental social science network. But one of the core aims, at least from my perspective, is that it should be something which then it's not driven by us. It's driven by a demand from within the community to to shape a new identity um, mm-hmm. and to use the platform as people like it to be. Um, you know, we want to get feedback on what we should talk about on the podcast. We want to get feedback on who we should have on the podcast, the diversity of different perspectives we should we, we should talk about um, mm-hmm. across the academic, but also the non-academic sphere. You know, we want to talk with NGOs working in, in the space or, or policymakers working in the space. Um, I think we'll probably tend to have a little bit of an emphasis more on academic work, but hopefully over time we can we can get the feedback and see what people want to hear um, and incorporate that into really a community which shapes its own identity can use that space and these platforms to 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 get what they want out of it. Yes, no, I mean, I, I everything you just said, I mean, this is why I'm excited about this. Um, hopefully it's something that we can just kind of keep on building, um, learning as we go, of course. As I was saying to you earlier, I'm still getting used to kind of hearing my own voice in the way, way I am and with this fancy microphone, but. Right, right. Um, yeah, should be fun. Yeah, looking forward. So what do you have any other thoughts? Um, one other thing I thought was, you know, we haven't talked too much about what this idea for the environmental social science network could be. And you and I have had a lot of separate discussions about that. So potential ideas and kind of but think, thinking about what I just said and how we want it to be something which the community can provide feedback on and use. Yeah, um, there's still some thoughts which you and I had, which might be useful. And do you want to share some ideas for what you thought about the a database, for example? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think Again, it's about working together. Um, it's about sharing stories and experiences. And I also think it's about sharing resources more than we typically do. Um, I was just at a workshop down at the University of Arizona. And part of what, part of what I talked about during a presentation I gave there was, you know, what resources would help the community um, address some challenges that we all face. For example, in producing more comparable data than is generally produced. Well, wouldn't it be cool to have um, a database that had um, a whole bunch of questionnaires that people have used to study uh, common pool resource management and governance, right? So a whole database of commons-oriented questionnaires. And not not just that, but a whole question bank, right? So um, and this could be implemented fairly straightforwardly in a relational database. Right, you've got a, tab- a table that describes the questionnaires, and you've got a table that has the questions they contain. And then, what an amazing resource it would be if folks could could query that database and pull up the questions, say, about property rights in fisheries governance. Right, I think that's some that's something where there is a lot of reinventing the wheel, um, especially for young scholars, PhD students, master students who are looking for projects and they want it to be you know rigorous and scientifically sound. They want to see if they can repeat other work that people have done. Um, and yep. there's so much question development, which just happens over and over again in survey development. And do you know, is there actually a good resource at the moment? I know you guys have started the SESMAD database and there's a few others which actually provide uh, sharing, across, like a methodology sharing, I guess you could call it. Uh, not that I'm aware. If someone listens to this podcast episode and knows of something, uh, I would love to hear about it. I think everyone would love to hear about it. But I'm not aware of any... Um, 
you know, central repository of, of methods materials. Um, some of us are talking about it as kind of developing, you know, you could put it in the wiki. There's different things you could think of, you know, cause it, it's, it, it's not just about questionnaires and, and data collection instruments. It's about every step of the research process, right? What are even, what are the research questions that people are trying to answer? Right. Right. Um, I mean, certainly it would help to have a, a, a repository of questionnaires and, and a question bank. I mean, to make a good questionnaire is involves some suffering, right? You can make a bad questionnaire in half an hour, right? To make a good one takes months. Um, but you know, at each stage of the research process, it would be, it'd be really helpful to have central resources that help people learn from each other. What are your, what are the main questions that you're trying to answer in your studies? Um, how did you go about, uh, sampling? What were the challenges that you had there? And this relates not just to, um, the lack of availability of resources, the way I'm thinking about them, but you know, it, some basic standardization in how, say, case studies are reported would be helpful too, right? And it'd be nice if, you know, say the International Journal of the Commons or Ecology and Society, some of these interdisciplinary journals, this is another idea I floated at the workshop, if there was some kind of basic template that you were asked to fill out when you submitted a case study to them that said, asked you to say, just like, what are your research questions? What were your basic methods um, as described in this wiki that describes all of these different methods that you could be using? And then suddenly we build, we collaboratively build a database that everyone can look at over time, right? So that in five years, a new PhD student could just query the IJC stu case study database to look at what methods people have used where, and then could download the questionnaires that were used as a part of those methods. Right, right. Yeah, that reminds me of another thing about this idea of that, you know, there's this, there's this time delay in academia because, because publications are the only mechanism for communication there is a delay in ideas uh, in terms of how they get dis mm. dispersed to the rest of the community. So when you yeah. read someone's paper, which for, if, you know, if I read your paper, which just came out this week, um, that's, that's stuff that you worked on three years ago, maybe. Right. It's not necessarily what you're working on now. Um, right. Maybe you solved a lot of the problems in between. Um, and I think the podcast could be something which kind of breaks down the time barrier a little bit more to say, you know, what, what is your project now? You know, that the project yeah. we're working on now is not going to have publications until 2021. But, you know, this is what we're thinking about. This is the kind of state of the art and the, and the methodology design, or this is what we're thinking about theoretically. These are the types of research questions which we are thinking about. Um, and that would hopefully be able to share more information faster um, across the community and hopefully also database as well, because um, I could yeah, be entered in I more mean, real time that you wouldn't have to wait necessarily until the, pub the published data comes out. Because in a lot of ways, right, that's when you'd like to engage with people the most. Right. Is when you're actively working through the ideas, not when you've got some polished, marketable product. Yeah, I think that, you know, those ideas tend to come in proposal development stages early on and really thinking of long-term, rethinking an academic strategy or research question. Um, but that's, you know, years often before, before the papers come out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we just, I don't, you know, I don't perceive my profession to be a monastic one. Um, I'm fine with monastic careers, but it's not the one that I wanted. And so I think it's, we want to, we want to encourage people to socially engage more. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Well, and did you have any other thoughts about the, the network as such? Um, what its potential could be? Any tools that we could use within it? Uh, 
Nothing that occurs to me immediately. Yeah, I'm quite excited. I'm happy we're getting this off the ground. Yeah, and something that we'll hopefully mentioned earlier is that we're going to at least start with some sort of online presence, the, the, the classic mediums through which most people are familiar with, uh, Twitter being the main one. Um, we'll try to launch that uh, both for the podcast and also for the network just to see if people can get engaged. And, you know, it's not something that we wanted to design ourselves and design all the, the, the goals and aims for. But hopefully we can, if we can build a, a small community of people on Twitter, um, we can we can ask for feedback and then we can take it from there. Yeah, sounds good. And of course, you know, folks listening to this, if you have someone that you think should really be interviewed or you'd like to talk to us about engaging with this, please contact us.